Hello and welcome to Life Sentences. I'm Caroline Baum. Pioneering skin and burn surgeon Professor Fiona Wood is known to most Australians thanks to her saving many victims of the Bali bombing terror attack and for her high-profile work developing so-called spray-on skin. She is a public figure and an obvious choice for a biography, and her backstory has all the right elements. A humble Struggle Street background in a British coal mining community at a time of great social disruption, an improbable ambition to belong to an exclusive and very male club in the medical profession, migration to Australia, and somehow managing to raise six, yes, six children while pursuing a career that combines breakthrough innovation with compassion. Journalist and biographer Sue Williams was a fan, but it took her years to persuade Fiona to agree to telling her story. And life found ways to make the process more difficult, as you will hear. I spoke to Sue Williams in Sydney. Tell me how your biographies generally come about, because this book is not your first. No, that's right. Biographies are kind of very varied, really. Sometimes I see somebody on kind of on the stage and I think, wow, I would love to know more about them and I would love to kind of be part of their story in some ways and tell their story to a wider audience. Or sometimes publishers might approach me, they've got somebody that they would like a biography of, and sometimes the actual subjects approach me and say, you know, I'm kind of, I'm, I, I've got this story and I would love to tell it and you know, I've seen other biographies you've written and would you be prepared to do mine? But I think most often it's me tracking down the person and kind of harassing them and stalking them and just seeing (laughs) if they'll agree. Well, that was certainly the case with Fiona Wood. And was that because you were admiring her work from afar every time you saw her name on the news? Absolutely. I mean, I first got interested in Fiona. I mean, I I guess the spray on skin thing was a huge story at the time. I mean, it was a long time ago now. And then, of course, when after the Bali bombings, after that tragedy, she really came back into the spotlight, too. And I started writing to her and I kind of looked it up later on. And it was 17 years ago that I first started writing to her and saying to her, could I write your biography? (laughs) And every year, every Christmas, I would write another letter to her saying, please let me write your biography. And every year she'd write a very polite note back saying, thank you so much, but um, I really don't think I need a biography or I'm worth, worthy of a biography and I'm far too busy anyway. So every time she'd write back very similar replies and I would write back and not hear back from her. But then I would, the next Christmas I would start again. So I've got this stack of letters to her. And it's kind of funny because I I guess at some point I should have just given up. But there was something about Fiona. I mean, her humility really appealed to me as well. The fact that she didn't really want a biography. I I think that can be quite attractive to you because lots of people whose biographies you write, you know, they've achieved huge things and therefore they have a certain sense of of pride and, Mm. you know, sometimes a little touch of arrogance perhaps. Mm. But Fiona had nothing like that. I mean, she's very proud of her work, but she really didn't feel the need to talk about it any more than she already had. That's interesting, isn't it? Particularly in relation to surgeons, because surgeons stereotypically are not exactly known for their humility. (laughs) No, absolutely. And, And they always say, I mean, I've had something to do with neurologists over the years, and they always say with neurologists, the closer they are to the head that they're operating on, the closer they feel they are to God. And I think that's a a very, very thing that something that's very true for sometimes a lot of surgeons, but certainly not all of them. 
No, no. But I wanted to ask you, because there is a note at the back from Fiona, I wondered whether at some stage, okay, she had rejected your advances about a biography, but I wonder whether at some stage she thought that if a book was going to be done about her, it might be that she would work with a ghostwriter on a memoir. Do you think that that was ever on the horizon as an option? Not not really. I mean, when I approached her, I kept saying to her, look, I could write it in the third person, I could write it in the first person, I could ghost it for you. And I think being ghosted was kind of quite unattractive for her in lots of ways, because it would involve her perhaps doing a lot more work. And she really didn't want to be too distracted from all her research. And that because that's the thing she's really passionate about, the thing she holds dear. So the idea of writing a third person biography in the end, won the day, because it meant that I would go off and I would do things like I read all her research papers. I listened to all the speeches she'd made over the years. I listened to all the podcasts, everything that she'd ever done and and read all the interviews she'd ever given, which weren't very many, really. She's not very much of a publicity hound whatsoever, which is kind of a bit surprising in some ways because she's always trying to raise more money for her research foundation. But um, she obviously tries to do, she tries to keep that to an absolute minimum. But I did all this reading around her. And then, of course, I went on to her family, talked to her family, talked to her friends, talked to her colleagues, other people that she'd worked, you know, studied with at medical college, all that kind of thing. So I could do all that work and not really bother her too much until I wanted to start doing some interviews with her. So that, I think... That, in the end, was what won the day with her, the fact that she, that I would be off doing stuff. And she, and she never really had to think about it then. And then I would come back to her with a lot of knowledge too because sometimes, you know, it must be hard for people when they've achieved a certain level of fame and professional standing. They're repeating their story over and over again. But with me, in the end, she didn't have to do that. She knew that because I knew so much about her. And I think she felt a bit spooked, really, by how much I knew about her. (laughs) We'd be talking, I'd say, oh, yes, your mum told me that. And she'd, oh, really? (laughs) Yes, that, that would be quite strange. But let me ask you this then. Would you have undertaken this book without her help? So, I mean, obviously this is done in a very cooperative way, but given her standing, given her significance and her achievements, and your commitment in terms of your interest in her as a figure, would you have done it without her? No, I don't think so. I wouldn't have done it without her blessing. I mean, the difficulty in Australia is our defamation laws. I mean, in, in America, you could write, you know, Kitty Kelly does all those books. You can you can write nasty biographies. You can write slavishly adoring biographies. In Australia, we kind of have to be very careful what we say. And I actually think it's really, it's not kind of giving respect to the person that you're writing about if you don't have their cooperation. It makes it much, much harder because I was able to say to Fiona, could you give me a list of some of your friends and could you give me some phone numbers of family, that kind of thing. Without those, I I obviously would have been able to track them down but it would have been hard. It would have been hard to say to those friends, talk to me about Fiona, tell me about some of the the amazing things she's done or the things you've done together or the stories you have about her, you know, even the unflattering stuff. It would have been hard for them to have talked to me without Fiona's blessing. So I, I just think it's kind of, it's not very respectful of the person you're writing about if you don't get their cooperation. And you end up with a little bit of a, a half light on them in some ways, because you're never going to get the whole truth 
unless they've lived their entire life on the, on the stage and we know everything about them. And we certainly didn't know that about Fiona. So I felt it was really important to have her cooperation in a book that I was writing about her. Okay, but then let me ask you this, the obvious question. How much editorial control does a subject get in those circumstances where they're giving you full cooperation? Did you do some kind of deal where she could redact, she could say, no, I need you to take that out? Yes, and and that's kind of one of the hardest things, I think, with biography, because when you write a biography, you obviously write about the good stuff, but you also write about the difficult stuff as well, the bad stuff. I mean, Fiona has a lot of critics who don't particularly like her or value her contribution. And I was very keen to talk to them as well about their their view of Fiona. So that would be quite unflattering as well. But the hardest thing with biography is you really don't want any biography to be hagiography. You want it to include the light and the dark. And if there are any skeletons in the closet, you want to bring them out and actually examine them very carefully. I've had lots of situations where I've written a biography and then the subject will look at the manuscript. And I I had one one subject who was in tears all the time and saying, no, we can't say this, we can't say this. And then it becomes your role as a biographer to really persuade that person to keep that stuff in and say to them, look, people won't believe it if it's just all the good stuff. You've really got to keep in that, that bit. And at the end of the day, people will respect you for it. I mean, I did a biography of the New South Wales Police Commissioner, Peter Ryan, who had a terrible time in lots of ways when he was, when he was here. He was often being undermined by lots of his enemies. And, and at one point, he became quite suicidal. And he talked about this in a, you know, like at three o'clock one morning with me when he was really tired and really being very open. And then when he saw that on the pages of the manuscript, he was horrified and said, well, you can't possibly say this because it, it makes me look weak and it makes me look vulnerable. And I was saying, well, no, it makes you look human. And it, it makes people realise the depths to which you sank, you know, at the height of the campaign against you being waged by other people. And, you know, to his credit, he said by the end, he said, OK, we'll leave it in. He may have regretted it when it came out later. <laughs> And when he was doing the the publicity rounds and journalists were quizzing him about it. But the the book went down really well. And I think it reflected extremely well on him that he was able to do that. I mean, I I did a biography of Father Chris Riley, who started a charity called Youth Off the Streets. So he was really dedicated to, to, you know, homeless young people. And at, at one point in his early life, he was being preyed upon by a pedophile within his own priest network when he was a young young priest, novice in training. And he showed, when I gave him the manuscript, he showed it to the CEO of his organisation. And she came back and said, well, you can't possibly put that in because it makes you look, well, it makes you look vulnerable as well. And maybe people will think just because you've been preyed upon by a pedophile, I mean, nothing happened. He was being groomed steadily. But the relationship finished before anything terrible actually happened. She said it makes you look as if maybe your whole campaign is because you've experienced this as well. And he came back to me and said, what do you think of that? And I said, no, 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 I think it shows that you really can understand young people when they're going through these agonies themselves. It gives you a first-hand experience. And then two days later, he, he said he'd have a think about it. Two days later, he came back to me and said, oh, problem solved. We'll keep that in the book. And I said, yes, but what about your CEO? And he said, I've sacked her. <gasps> oh, 
Wow. And I felt obviously terrible about that, but he was saying, no, no, fine, you know. And Father Chris, I mean, is an amazing man. And, you know, he has to be really kind of hard-headed to do the kind of work he does. So that was his decision. It was kind of, you know, I didn't play any role in that. But to his credit, we left everything in. And so really, to be honest, I've, I've been really, really lucky with my biographies subjects because hopefully by the end of the process, they really trust you mm. and they're willing to kind of put their life in your hands almost. So it feels like a huge responsibility. But nobody that I've done a biography of has ended up taking out sections of that biography that, that reflect badly on them. I mean, I did a biography of Fred Brophy, who's the last boxing tent showman in Australia, who runs this fantastic outback boxing travelling tent that only travels now in Queensland and Northern Territory because outback boxing is outlawed everywhere else because it's so dangerous. But he's an amazing character and I ended up writing his biography and three quarters of the way through, <laughs> I discovered he's actually Aboriginal and he had no idea about that. And it was just I was tracing all these family members that he had had no contact with for many, many years. And gradually I kind of built up a family tree and discovered, yes, he, he had Aboriginal ancestors. And so then it became a difficult situation because I had to sort of tell him and I wasn't quite sure how he would react. And at first he was kind of really doubtful about the whole thing. And then he became a little bit upset because he'd never kind of experienced that before. <clears throat> and then finally, by the end, he really embraced the Aboriginal side of his life. And it was like a fantastic reawakening for him in some ways. And, and I was kind of nervous at first that he would say, let's take that out. But by the end, he was so proud of that heritage it was fantastic. And sometimes, you know, because you're a cold-hearted researcher going about <laughs> this task, you come up with some really unexpected stuff and then you use all your powers of persuasion, really, to, to get people to keep those in the manuscript because by the end you hold the manuscript really dear. And obviously if there are any mistakes in there, that's a fantastic opportunity for them to correct anything but I really don't want them to take out huge chunks of a manuscript that, you know, has been really carefully crafted. It struck me reading your book, you go chronologically and it, it reads very well because you're fleshing out a lot of context that goes to character. So when you tell us about the fact that Fiona grew up in a mining community in England where accidents and disasters were just woven into the fabric of her life, you can see the impact that that has on her. But I did also think at one point when I was reading the book, gee, you could have started with the Bali bombings the kind of absolute epicenter of the book, the sort of molten, literally epicenter of the book, and then worked backwards. So did you know from the beginning that you wanted to work chronologically? Is that your general methodology? Well, often I'll do a prologue and I'll talk about the most exciting part of the book, which would have been the Bali bombings. But I kind of felt with Fiona, I mean, that's only kind of one part of her work. And that's the part that she kind of plays down constantly because that's the part that everybody knows about her. And so I really wanted to present 
I really wanted us to get to know her and kind of grow up with her through time and understand her motivation and how strongly she felt. So I just kind of felt by starting at the Bali bombings, I'd be kind of cheating her in some ways. I yeah, I wanted to kind of build up to them. I wanted to her to go through her tra- you know to to live in her village, to understand her childhood, and understand that background of of the miners' strike and the effect that that would have had on her psyche, on her real desire for justice for people, and what it was like growing up at that time, you know, in a coal mining community that was absolutely dependent on the coal mines for their prosperity. So I just wanted us to get to know her, the, the kind of stuff that we just didn't know anything about because she's never really talked about it before and then come through with her and then, you know, halfway through the book, the Bali bombings happen. And, I mean, there's so much before the Bali bombings where she's laying the foundation for any kind of real accident that's going to happen in Australia, any any huge crisis and then you can kind of see all the jigsaw pieces suddenly fit in. So yeah, I mean, I could have, I could certainly have done that. I just kind of felt it was a bit. It might have been a little bit of a cheap shot and a, a little bit too commercial just to go straight to the Bali bombings. Really, maybe that was a wrong decision. Maybe no, no. I think I think you made the right decision. And in a way, if you had started with the Bali bombings, that's kind of almost too journalistic, isn't it? You start with the kind of inciting moment, and mm. then you backtrack from that. And I, I mm. see absolutely why you did what you did. And as you say, you do get a really fantastically strong sense of the development of her character and her ambition from from getting all the context and the family, particularly details which you know you don't labour. But the fact that she went to a Quaker school and Quaker schools have got a very strong sense of egalitarianism woven into their principles. And obviously that that also has been an influence. Mm, absolutely. And with Fiona, as the years passed, as these 17 years went on and I kept facing knockbacks, the thing that really kept me going with her was that we're very similar ages. We both come from Britain originally and both came to Australia and, you know, have really adopted the the country and really love the country and also when she was growing up in this little mining village I went to university in a mining town in mining city Durham so that was surrounded by mines so I really felt that I understood her background as well Mm. we're and you know we're both kind of working class both kind of made good that kind so I kind of felt that I had a bit of empathy for her journey already for the beginning, obviously not for the medical brilliance, nothing like that. But, um, you know, I I kind of felt, look, I was perfectly placed to try and understand that childhood and the effect of that childhood and wanting to, to do better because her parents were really determined that she should do well and managed to get her into this really expensive Quaker school just by her mother by sheer dint of strength of character, finding a job in the Quaker school that, so that her daughter could go there for much less money than would normally cost her. Now, you said earlier on, and I'm amazed by this, that you read all her research papers, which must have been pretty gruelling and technical. But I have to ask you, did you actually watch Fiona perform surgery? No, sadly, I didn't. Well, actually, happily, I didn't. <laughs> I, don't, <laughs> I don't think I could have... I could have stood it, really. I mean, you know, like some of the photos that I looked at were just 
ghastly. I just, you know, I'm very squeamish in lots of ways. So that would have been horrible. But when I was doing the book, it was the time of COVID. So that added an extra difficulty. And if COVID, you know, she was in WA and they were kind of locked down in Perth. I was in New South Wales. We were locked down in Sydney. So there was no way I could, I only met her after I'd written the book. We had lots of talks on Zoom, but we actually never physically met in the flesh until afterwards. So it was really hard. If if I'd have been able to spend more time in Perth at the time, I mean, I'd gone over to Perth to try and, before COVID happened, I'd actually physically gone to Perth because I thought I'm going to give one last go to try and persuade her to do this book. And if she says no again, I think I just have to give it up. This is ridiculous, writing all these letters all the time. And uh, she could call the police and say that I'm stalking her and it could be very embarrassing. So I went over there and I had a meeting with her, somebody she works with very, very closely and gave this woman lots of my books. And she went away promising she would read them. And then by the end, she said, I'm going to try and persuade Fiona as well now. Oh. And it was kind of just, a, you know, a year before, well, just a bit before the 20th anniversary of the Bali bombing. So it would have been perfect timing for the book to come out then, which actually worked exactly well. But unfortunately, then COVID arrived. She persuaded Fiona. Fiona finally agreed. So we started the book, but I was never able to, to meet her until after the book would finish the book. So I met her lots of times on Zoom. But if if COVID hadn't have happened, I doubtless would have gone over and I would have seen her operate. And so I'm kind of quite lucky that I didn't do that because (laughs) (laughs) that could be horrible. One of the things that I got reading the book is just this extraordinary sense of her stamina. I mean, stamina is key with her. But I also am just completely dumbstruck by the idea that from a very early age, she knew that she wanted to have a very large family. In fact, she knew that she wanted to have six children and she has had six children. Do you understand that desire for that huge kind of family, given (laughs) the pressures, the challenges? I mean, obviously, she's a brilliant organiser. But why do you think she wanted so many children? (laughs) <laughs> yes, it's it's a tricky one, isn't it? Because it is quite hard for us to understand. But, you know, she came from a very happy home. She had a father and a mother she adored and brothers and a sister. That, so she came from, they had four children in her family. So she kind of enjoyed that. And I think she wanted to replicate that happiness for her kids. And she said at one point that she knew if she had six children, they'd all be able to look after each other. And so therefore, you know, she would have more time to do her work kind of thing. And that, well, that makes sense too, doesn't it really? Does it? Yeah, well, kind of, kind of a bit. But she kind of thought that they would all amuse each other. And, you know, there were, there were times when she had somebody looking after them and she had help with them. She would have had to. But she kind of saw them as a team that, who moved around. And, and it, was, it was quite remarkable because she integrated them extremely well into her professional life. You know, in the book, you've read how she'd, she'd often come in with a baby strapped on her back or on her front. And she'd sometimes put the baby in a basket on the shelf and she would operate. I mean, that probably wouldn't be allowed these days. No. But she'd always bring the kids in when she was going round to see her patients. And she was she was very dedicated to her patients. So she'd come in on the weekends. There was none of this stuff that you get today about, no, no, I'm not working this weekend. I'll see you next week. 
she would come in on the weekends. She, she might have been exercising. She was a mad fanatic cyclist. She'd come in on her cycling gear with, you know, two or three kids trailing along after her. And it's probably really nice for patients, really, because, you know, you often have specialists who's in a three-piece suit even today and they stand at the bottom of your bed and you feel incredibly intimidated. But for her, you know, cycling gear with these kids and, you know, her hair madly, no no makeup, it must have been great for her patients. And they all, she always said, call me Fiona. It was never anything Dr Wood or Professor Wood. And so she was a very human person. And you talk to her patients and almost without exception, they all adore her. And, mm. you know, obviously you feel a huge debt of gratitude to somebody who's helped you, but they really, really like her as a character and as a personality as well. And she's got a great way of explaining their, you know, the the, the kind of issues that they are going to have. She's really tough with them as well. I mean, as you read in the book, you know, she would she wouldn't, people would be saying to her, oh, no, look, I can't walk now. I, I can't do some these exercises you've given me because I just feel too bad and it's too painful. And she would say, well, get up and do them. No, I'm, you, you've got to do them. Otherwise, you're going to be in bed for the rest of your life. And someone would say, oh, I need to go to the bathroom. And she'd say, well, what's stopping you? And she, she was a really real tough love at the same time. What in the course of writing this book surprised you most about her? I actually think how nice she is. <laughs> you know, like when you write a lot of biography, you can often really admire the people you're writing about, but they're often not that nice. <laughs> that sounds terrible, doesn't it? Sometimes they're great, but often there's a degree of arrogance there and there isn't much humility. I remember getting really badly injured in an accident and turning up at one of the biographer's houses in a wheelchair for another interview. And he didn't even mention the wheelchair. He didn't even ask why I was in a wheelchair. And I can kind of understand that because as the biographer, you're kind of very much in the background. You become a little, you know, you know you're, you're just, you know, grey and you're just looking at their lives and you're you're just interpreting their lives and structuring it. But, you know, you don't want to be a factor in that. So you can understand it. But Fiona, she's just very, very different. You know, we'd talk on the phone and she would always ask how you are and, you know, and that's really kind of quite rare. It is. Mm. And when I met her the first time, it was after the book had been published. <laughs> it was quite funny because her the executive she works with said to me, okay, Fiona's coming to Sydney. We were still in lockdown then, but she would love to meet you. And I said, great, that sounds fantastic. And she said, okay, she has a space between 7am and 7.30am <laughs> at some hotel in Sydney. Then she has to go to the airport to go back. And I thought that is so typical because, you know, I've been right. It's, it's funny, it surprises you sometimes. You write about people. You write about how energetic she is, as you quite rightly say, and how her life is so tightly structured. And then it surprises you when you're given a 30-minute moment with her. But that's Before kind of breakfast. typical. Exactly. <laughs> I noticed that Woodside are important backers for some of Fiona's key work and research, and they are seen as a company that is a major environmental baddie. And I was wondering whether you had any sense of what Fiona's personal politics are, because she's obviously been dependent 
on sources of money that may come with various perceptions and strings attached. Yeah, no, certainly. And I guess I talked, when I talked to Woodside, I had this fantastic guy who used to be very high up on the executive. At the time, Fiona was emerging and who decided to support her and agreed to the the kind of terror exercise that they undertook, which was before Bali, which put them in very good stead. So I talked to him and that was kind of, he was there before all the environmental concerns were raised. But these days, yes, I, it is much more difficult. But then again, Woodside do do some good things. They do give these research foundations a lot of money. And in my experience, those foundations, they're kind of, you know, they're very reluctant to criticise the, the hand that feeds them because, say in Fiona's case, she is so set on doing the best she possibly can for burns patients and avoiding burns in future and creating better treatment for burns when they do happen, that she will say that that's her interest. She will leave the environmental stuff to other people. So it didn't, it never really came up. Maybe I should have kind of addressed it more forcibly, but really I think that would have been a different kind of book well, I, I just wondered whether you ever had a personal conversation with her about politics, because, I mean, I noticed that, for example, John Howard was particularly delighted to be associated with her as <laughs> Australian of the Year. He he mm. really kind of backed her. But at the same time, you know, she's treating people under all sorts of circumstances and she's treating refugees from a boat that's exploded at sea off Ashmore Reef who don't get anything like the public sympathy and mm. attention that the victims of the Bali bombings had. Did she never make a comment to you that suggested where her politics, her personal politics, when she's voting, might lie? Well, you kind of look at her background and you would assume it would be, you know, certainly Labour because, you know, that's the kind of background she came from. And, and she is very kind of egalitarian mm. and she's you know, eager to help refugees exactly the same as she would help John Howard if he ever had a bad burn. Let's hope he doesn't. But um, to be honest, politics doesn't really come into her life very much. She's just concerned with the politics of getting money for her research. And she's very content to leave the, the messy business of politics to others. So no, while she would be generally kind of quite in favour of egalitarianism, She's just not interested in politics. Mm. It doesn't kind of come into her sphere. It's not on her radar, is it? I've no, really got the sense that it's just right. not, she hasn't got the bandwidth to mm. go there. No, that's right. And there might be a politician in one party, a national party who might pledge her money, and then there might be a politician in the Labour Party who might pledge her money, and she would be equally grateful to either and very happy to take the money from either. You know, she wouldn't be thinking, I, I don't agree with this person's politics, so therefore I'm not going to take the money. It doesn't doesn't come into it. It's all about the business of helping burns patients and preventing anybody else being burned. Really, that that is her sole focus. And, politics and in a way, left to other other people. She's also got quite an unconventional approach, hasn't she? In that she's much more holistic than a lot of other people would be. When she, for example, and this was completely new to me, when she gets interested in the neuroplasticity of the brain and the idea that the brain may play a part in our ability to heal, mm. that that really was a whole other dimension. And she 
she embraces that fully, doesn't she? She certainly does. I mean, that's a big part of her work now, really. And also, you know, the the psychological effects of burns on people and how, you know, talking to, to some of the burns nurses, they were talking about how sometimes people come in after burns and they gradually notice that their personality completely changes. And some some of them become, you know, much more aggressive. Some of them become much more passive. And, you know, there hasn't really been much research done. You know, there's lots of research done on burns, but not really on the psychological effects of them and how it might affect the brain and then how the brain can work to affect the, the healing of the body. And, I mean, it, it is kind of a bit of a left field subject but Fiona is just so interested in everything I mean you you can't have a conversation with her without her jumping into other areas like the first time I met her she noticed I had a a ring on with kind of a a purple stone tanzanite and um, she has got a ring which is quite similar because she does jewelry making in her spare time I mean wow (laughs) who would know I mean, what spare time between 4am and 4.30am, maybe she's got a bit of spare time. But, you know, so she's really interested in, she she took off my ring and looked at how it'd been made and stuff. She's just got that science brain just to ask about everything. Why does this happen? What does this lead on to? And it's, it's like following somebody down a rabbit hole. One of the things that one gets a sense of from your book is that she has this kind of questing curiosity and she will come at things from any angle. So, for example, she asks herself, how does a gecko regrow its tail? That really for her is the holy grail, isn't it? The idea of scarless healing. Absolutely. And it's quite brilliant, really, isn't it? But you look at a gecko and how well it can just reproduce its own skin. And so she's talking, can we, re- can, can a human ever reproduce her own skin? So she's looking at how the brain can work in association with the body, how we can think ourselves to health. And I mean, that, that's, a, that's a kind of philosophy that goes back you know, thousands and thousands of years, but it does does tend to be a little bit on the outer, really. It's, you know, generally surgeons don't kind of go to that those extents. But yeah, she's kind of thinking, is there any way that we can regrow healthy skin after damaging our skin so much? And that, yeah, as you say, that's her holy grail, the scarless healing, people to heal themselves and then just still work as as well as they possibly can. Because obviously when you've got terrible deep burns, it affects the organs, it affects the brain, it affects everything about your body. If you can actually regenerate yourself, how amazing would that be? And if she can kind of crack that idea, I mean, that's got huge implications for, you know, every single speciality of, of medicine that exists. Yes, I mean, she's always looking at pushing the boundaries, isn't she? Because at the moment, she's got this thing called the eye knife in development. So what would that allow her to do? Yeah, well, she's one of the very first people who've admired AI and started putting that into her work as well. And she's basically thinking that sometimes, you know, really, really precise machines can possibly operate and can sense better than a human 
hand can and a human mind can understand. So she's really trying to harness new technology in a way that would really replicate you know, what a professional surgeon can do, but actually go beyond that and improve that. And that's quite remarkable. I mean, as a writer, I look at AI and I get really nervous because I think AI is going to replace me. Why would anyone hire me? Because they can just get a computer program. Whereas instead of her thinking, oh, I don't want to use AI because, you know, I might be redundant. She's saying, how can we we harness all these amazing discoveries we're having to really improve the state of humankind and really get much better solutions to the problems that we're facing. And I think that's absolutely admirable, really. I mean, I, I find it really hard. I hate change. I can't cope with it at all, really. But um, she just really embraces it every single opportunity, which is a certain personality type and a certain outlook. Well, I guess it's the kind of relentless optimism that she has that things can only be improved, things can mm. only get better. One of the things that I learned from your book, because I've always wondered about why some people die from burns injuries and others don't, and you do a great job of explaining Fiona's techniques, but also the different kinds of burns that present to her and the different risk factors associated, primarily, obviously, infection being the main one. But another thing that I learned from your book that I found really fascinating was that people who've been burned often don't feel any pain in mm. the moment. Can you just can you just explain why that is? The reason some people, you know, have terrible burns, but then don't seem to kind of feel them or it doesn't seem to impair them just at the beginning is because their skin is dying and their nerve endings have been burnt so they can't actually feel the the, the real agony that, that most normal people would feel and they just kind of carry on and carry on until finally that catches up with them and we saw that very much in the Bali bobbings there was Fiona was in Canberra getting ready to fly over to, to Bali and she saw one of the bomb victim, somebody who suffered really serious burns, appear on television and saying, oh, yes, I'm fine. Everything's OK. We, we're going all right. And she took one look at him and phoned the hospital there and said, get him into surgery immediately because he's going to die if he's not in surgery within 24 hours, because she could see the signs that he was kind of in shock. But the, the severity of his burns was such that he was going to be in serious trouble if he didn't get help very, very quickly. And that, that's quite incredible, isn't it, that she could actually watch somebody talk on television and know exactly what the prognosis was if, if there wasn't emergency attention immediately. And this guy was refusing to, to have treatment because he said, oh, no, I feel fine. Having done the book, you know, the other day I burnt myself on the kettle and I went straight for the tap and just ran it under <laughs> cool water. And, yeah, and she was... I mean, she was saying there's so many misconceptions out there. You should put honey on burns, all those kind of things. She's saying, no, clear water, clear running water is the absolute best. And she really pounds out those messages, which is fantastic. You know, it's, it's great for people in WA who are getting those messages firsthand. And then the rest of us in other states who are receiving it pr probably secondhand. But the important thing to her is education. And if she can stop some of those terrible burns happening in the first place, you know, how much richer are people's lives going to be? Because, I mean, I was very lucky writing the book. So many of her patients were really happy to talk to me, which shows the, the regard that they held for Fiona. 
and they told some of their stories. They were really heartrending stories, you know, and they were saying, you know, how their lives had been really affected by what happened, but how they probably wouldn't have had a life at all without Fiona. And one woman I talked to had been horrifically burned in a plane accident. And halfway through the interview, she said, well, do you actually know what I look like? And I, I said, well, no, actually, I don't. So she sent me some photographs of her. And then, and then looking at her face, which had been, you know, really very badly disfigured, I could actually understand much more how she saw her life and how she saw her future. And, and that was, you know, very, very generous of her. People were very keen to, you know, strip away all the artifice and really tell me the real story about their suffering and how Fiona had dealt with them and their experiences of her and how she stays in touch with them for many years later. And, uh, I mean, a testament to that is so many of her former Burns patients, when she tries to have fundraising events for the Research Foundation, they're all very willing to throw themselves off high buildings, you know, in bungee jumps and stuff to raise money or climb down tall buildings or climb up them and stuff because they're so keen to help her and to help other people who might find themselves in similar positions to the ones they've been in. Now, obviously, one of the most well-known aspects to this story is the cell spray story, the spray-on-skin technology breakthrough. I wonder what you found the most interesting aspect of that story to write about, given that it already was out there in the public arena and she was, you know, very high profile with it. Was it the fact that perhaps at the back end, at the less visible end, the business end, she wasn't necessarily as skilled at business and management of, you know, developing a company around that technology. I mean, why should she be? For God's sake, she had plenty mm. of other skills to think about. What mm. what was it about cell spray that you found interesting to write about? The most interesting thing for me was these humble beginnings and how she it was late at night and she was with her other researcher and they were trying to work out how they could possibly spray on the skin and then going to all these chemist shops and buying all these nozzles and little containers they could possibly carry and bringing them back and experimenting with every single one of them. And finally, they found the perfect nozzle to distribute the skin just on a, a, a deodorant bottle. And then they kind of thought, wow, this is the moment. So this, this could really, really work. And I just thought those little details were quite fascinating, really. You know, the, the accidental details, you kind of think she would go to a big factory and say, make me something that would work in this way. But instead, she sort of goes to the chemist shop and she says, I, I'm sure they thought I had a terrible body odor problem because I was buying all these deodorants, every single one that they had there. And But no, then we would rush back, try them all out. None of them worked. We'd go off again. We'd go to another store, buy other things. And the excitement of that that mission, really... And I love the fact that in that scramble, as you say, to find the right kind of delivery system, she's not just going to buy every deodorant she can, but she goes to art shops. I mean, anything mm. where anything is being delivered, she goes to find a nozzle or a spray or a volumizer. It doesn't matter whether sure. it would come from a kitchen shop. Yes, no, that's right. It could well have been a, a spray that people use for graffiti might have ended up being the one. But you, yeah, she was just... You know, she's just so, such a lateral thinker. She doesn't discard anything or discount anything before she, she finds the right one, which is 
Yeah, I mean, it's just remarkable, really. It's, it's great. It must be great to have a brain like that. I mean, it must. It must. Mm. But before we sound as if we're just both kind of fangirling all over oh, yes. her, okay. what would you say is her single greatest character flaw? Is it a certain kind of stubbornness? <laughs> uh, yes, I guess it would be. She doesn't tolerate falls lightly either. You know, and that can sometimes be a surprising trait in a woman. Maybe it's not so surprising with some men. But she gets very impatient with people and, and people can sense that and they can find that quite hard to deal with. And obviously her, you know, her time management is a, is a great strength. But at the same time, you know, her friends sometimes, a couple of her friends sort of said, you know, that she, she often just never really had much time to hang out. She, she never really could allocate them much time in her diary because she was always so busy and while she always tried she always tried to entertain she always had families over for dinner she would go on they would go on family holidays it was always quite regimented in lots of ways because she had so much else on so maybe you know but she has achieved hugely by doing that you know who are we mm. to criticize her for that really and most of her friends were kind of quite sad that she hadn't had more time for them but they're kind of saying, well, now she seems to have a bit more time and she seems much more willing to invest in friendships than she had been before. When she was working so hard with the Bali bombing survivors, friends and would bring food for her kids and they would look after the kids. And, and she was just overwhelmed by it. She hadn't realised that people cared so much for her and would be so willing to do so many things because she doesn't ask for help. And no, that's but possibly... I mean, we, we should acknowledge the fact that it is actually Australia's good fortune that she fell in love with an Australian surgeon, Tony, yes. <laughs> who brought her back here. And he, unlike her, is a very, very private individual who carried on working as a surgeon, as well as being mm. the father to these six children, and presumably managing their home and sharing that load with Fiona. So did mm. you talk to him for the book? No, that, that was just one area that Fiona was quite adamant that should be left private because, I mean, it must be hard to be married to somebody so high profile. So Tony has deliberately always kept a very low profile. I mean, in all the photographs of the family that there have been, you know, when she got her awards and Australian of the Year, he's very rarely in any of those photographs because he, she just feels that she wants to leave a part of her life private. And so Tony is that part of the life that she wants to keep private. She'll, she'll talk about her children. Her children will be photographed with her. But that's just one, the one area she feels she has some control over. And Tony would like to keep his profession. You know, he's a successful surgeon too. He want, wants to keep that separate from hers. He still uses his name, obviously, and she uses her name, Wood, and he's different. So he just kind of feels that he doesn't want to be, I mean, it would be so easy to be subsumed by her, really, and her fame. And he just wants to keep that part of his life quite separate, and Fiona's very keen to do that too. That's really interesting, Sue, because you managed to give me the sense from reading the book that you have talked to him. Is that because you're quoting him from other sources? That's right, yep, yep, because he didn't want to talk about the book. He didn't want to talk for the book. He didn't want to talk about Fiona. So we just, other people talked about him and about the, the marriage and about her and their relationship. But, and the kids obviously talked about that too. But no, he, he really was adamant that he wanted to be 
quite separate from the book. And I think fair enough, because Fiona, there's so much going on in her life that we can read about and learn about. Maybe it's only fair that they keep one part of their life for themselves. <laughs> Finally, Sue, you've written quite a lot of quite detailed sort of case histories in this book to illustrate different approaches that she's had to different challenges of burns happening under different circumstances or different parts of the body. But in writing about this, was there one case that struck you that you thought was illustrative of everything about all the remarkable skills that Fiona has and deploys? When she was treating people from the from the Bali bombs, I mean, their, their wounds were really complex because they were terrible burns, they were often infected, and they were infected by bugs that we hadn't seen in Australia before because, you know, they'd been over in Bali, they'd, some of them had jumped into dirty swimming pool water or they'd been chucked into trucks and been taken to hospital in dirty trucks. So it was a really complex issues. And I think some of those were quite astonishing. I mean, she lost some patients. You know, they didn't all survive, obviously. And that always kind of was a source of so much sadness for her. But the, the ones who survived, I mean, they tended to be in partnerships with her. She would kind of urge them to keep going. And at times they wanted to give up because the pain was so bad and the, the prognosis wasn't good. And she really worked with them on a mental level as well as a physical medical level to kind of keep them going and keep them on track and focused and determined to survive. And so I think those cases were quite astonishing and they were also varied and people from all sorts of walks of life and different personalities, different characters. And yet, you know, when they survived, they all say they're, you know, they're, they now lead very fulfilled lives and that's because of the care that they received. There is no way that Sue Williams can conceal her admiration for her subject in this biography. It's evident all the way through, but it does not slide into hagiography despite that. She finds Fiona's critics and gives them airtime. The testimony of patients such as Cynthia Bannum, a victim of the London bombings, and others makes this a biography that has to include a fair amount of medical detail, which Sue makes accessible even though it is complex in nature. I commend her in reading all Fiona's medical papers, which must have been quite challenging for a non-medical person. I think she went above and beyond there. She also has to cover the business aspects of how Fiona found backers for her most innovative research. She draws on her experience as a journalist to vividly recreate the scene in the aftermath of the Bali bombing from the point of view of a colleague of Fiona's who happened to be there on holiday and provided invaluable first response assistance. It's pretty remarkable that she only meets Fiona at the end of the process, and I think she disguises the non-involvement of Fiona's husband very well. I don't think I would have spotted that. Thank you for listening to Life Sentences. The series is produced on Darawal Country by David Roach for Two Heads Media and edited by Kira Jordan for Pipewolf Media. Music is composed and performed by Amanda Brown. <laughs>